If you are new, we're continuing to look at the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first of four accounts looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Matthew is particularly concerned about portraying Jesus as the Messiah or the King of Jerusalem. Last week, we talked about the triumphant entry and how Jesus demands a lot as king and he is a, that he is a humble and unexpected king and a royal and true king. This week, I've titled my sermon Kingdom Confrontation because we'll see in this passage that Jesus confronts and engages in conflict in several areas. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew 21. And we are starting in verse 12, 12 to 22. Matthew 21, 12 through 22. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold. In, uh, sorry, all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever, ask you, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So the first principle I want to talk about is that Jesus is not afraid to confront the issues of his day. He's not afraid to confront the issues of his day. The first thing that we see after he, the temp, after he enters the temple is him overturning the tables and driving out those who are buying or selling. This is not the Jesus that we usually imagine as turning the other cheek and being humble and lowly. Last week, we saw him on a young donkey. And this week, we see him throwing tables around and forcing people to leave. We even see in John's recording of these events that he makes a whip of cords to help motivate these people to exit the temple. There are, there are many reasons why Jesus may have driven out these uh, money changers and pigeon sellers because there was a range of abuses that were happening during the time of Jesus. According to the tradition of rabbis or Jewish teachers, there are reports of those who are charging, overcharging for pigeons and doves during the times of Jesus. 
What is particularly disturbing and unnerving about this is that this was a poor person's sacrifice. When people wanted to present a sin offering to the Lord for atonement for sin or for uh, the birth of a new child, you would sacrifice a lamb. But if you couldn't afford a lamb, it would be a um, you could a dove or a pigeon. And this is a customary sacrifice. Remember, Jesus is there, there during Passover. So these people are selling these pigeons and possibly selling them at an exorbitant price to the poor. We also saw, if you remember from chapter 17, when they came to ask the religious teachers, um, they came to ask about whether Jesus pays the half shekel yearly temple tax. And if remember, if we remember, Jesus tells Peter that the sons of Israel should be free from paying this yearly tax, which is not in the Bible. Yet Jesus pays not to cause offense. So earlier, Jesus let this go, but here he is confronting the problem directly. There were also reports in the time of Jesus that the chief priests were stealing tithes from the people for themselves. Jesus could, could have been turning over the tables and driving them out for any or all of these reasons. And the main point here is that Jesus was not afraid to engage in these issues. He knew this was a problem at the temple, and he engaged with them by turning them over and kicking people out. And as he is doing this in the precincts of the temple, he quotes scripture to them. The first part of what he says, my house shall be called the house of prayer, comes from a prophetic statement by Isaiah. He says in this passage earlier, prior to this, what Jesus quotes is that those who are eunuchs and those who are foreigners will have a memorial within the temple greater than sons or daughters and that their sacrifices will be accepted by God and they will have joy in the temple. So the part that Jesus quotes comes immediately after this, which says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So this gives us a bit of insight into what Jesus was concerned about. We need to remember that Judaism has spread throughout the world at this time in a lot of different places. And there was reports of discrimination against Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews from the Jews that were from Palestine and from Jerusalem. So it's highly possible or likely that these money changers were overcharging for exchanging Greek currency and other forms of foreign currency into the shekel to pay the tax. And what Jesus is certainly saying here is that the money changers are not fulfilling what God wants from his house, which is an open, free house of prayer for all the nations, not just Hebrew-speaking Jews. This was the plan all along for Jews, and it's still the plan. And Jesus is showing this. The other part he quotes is even more indicting, specifically identifying these money changers and sellers and buyers as being responsible for making the temple a den of robbers. Instead of fulfilling God's mandate to be a house of prayer for all the nations to worship the one true God, Yahweh, it has become a place of profit and stealing from the people of God. This comes from Jeremiah chapter seven, where God speaks through him, commanding them to reform their ways. God also says here not to oppress the foreigner or to abuse and take advantage of the poor. 
and he will let his people live in the land. However, if they steal and murder and make the temple of den of robbers, then God will take away both the temple and the land that God gave to the people of, of Israel. Both of these passages talk about taking care of the foreigner and reforming the practices of the temple. And this is what Jesus is doing. He is the Messiah, and he is the one who has the authority to make these reforms, even if it's only for a short time while he is in Jerusalem. We can see that this was not heeded by the Jews, and the temple was destroyed in 87, 8070, and has not been rebuilt since. So God wants us to reform and not be concerned about making money, and he wants us to love the foreigners. This is a serious warning, and it's severe, and we need to be looking at this in our lives as well. We want to confront the issues inside and out the ch outside the church like Jesus is doing. And there's, so, and so there's much application for this today. First of all, we need to make sure that we are on the right side of these issues, especially when it comes to money. And I've said this before, and others have said this before, but Jesus makes it clear that there is great danger and loving money, and mixing it with our love for God. Jesus drove those people out trying to make extra money out of the temple. And these chief priests and others in the temple who are overseeing it probably let, led a pretty lavish lifestyle based on these taxes and the merchants. So we also need to be very careful about money in our lives as well, because many of us came to Kuwait to make money, to build wealth, to provide for our families. And this is not necessarily wrong, but this can easily become a trap. The lure of money can easily drown out what God is saying to us. We get jobs that make more and more money, but they demand more and more time. And people are exhausted at the end of the week and they start missing devotions, start spending less time with their families, start skipping church. And I, I've been here long enough in Kuwait to see Christians wander away from the faith I've seen Christians get divorced over this issue. I've uh, fallen in love with money. God has you in Kuwait for your job, yes, but he also has you in Kuwait to grow in your relationship with God, to build a community of support in your faith, and to give your time away to the kingdom. It's not just that living in Kuwait is not just about making money, but it's about God's kingdom, and Jesus shows this. Second, there are a range of issues that we should be involved with if God calls us in that direction, whether that's confronting poverty, justice for the weak or the poor, things like the abor abortion, uh, the environment, racism. We should be ready to fight for these things like Jesus. Now, this does not mean that we need to be a politician or go into political office unless you are called in that direction but rather how you respond in your sphere of influence, whether somebody tells an inappropriate joke or a stance in your workplace, that's where we as Christians should be making a stand in, with the, the environment that we are in. And there's many issues we can talk about here at length, but just the idea of loving the foreigner, I think is particularly important because that's what Jesus says that, about the temple being a house of prayer for all the nations. And this is why we named the church Crossroad International Church. We want to be a church that is filled with people from all nations of the world, including those who are poor and struggling, not just for, for expats who are well off. We should try to engage with what Kuwait is doing through the abuse of certain nationalities and jobs 
and bring comfort and relief to them. You know, in the past we've had, we've supported uh, Filipino embassy and uh, houses where they could not leave, but they were kind of trapped. They didn't have their passports. We've made in the past um, Christmas bags for the poor uh, nannies and Bangladeshi workers and those who do not have a, not have a lot or very much. So let's be like Jesus confronting these issues in whatever way that looks like to you. My second point is not only does he confront issue, but he also confronts people. Right? We see in the next verse, um, in verse 14, Matthew contrasts what Jesus is doing to religious establishments by driving out the religious merchants with Jesus healing the blind and the lame. Well, Jesus does not fear conflict and confrontation. He also balances that with bringing peace and healing to those who need it. As we have seen before, a significant part of Jesus's ministry is healing and is important here. However, the chief priests and the scribes were not so thrilled. These are the high-ranking religious leaders presiding over the different parts of the temple grounds. Um, they observe the healing that he does and the authority at which he commands these merchants to leave the temple. So historically, people thought that the people, those who needed healing, were under the judgment of God and were usually not welcome within the temple. But they see him doing this, welcoming them and then healing them. These priests are also offended at what the children say about Jesus being the son of David and giving praise. As we talked about last week, the people saying this is saying that Jesus is the true Messiah and King of Israel because you only give praise to the Lord and calling him the son of David is a clear reference to the person who will come as the Messiah, as the King of Israel. So the religious leaders are upset that Jesus is basically claiming divine authority by receiving praise, doing wonders, and calling out evil in the temple. But Jesus is not afraid to confront the religious leaders and has a ready response. He says he is very well aware of what they are doing. And it's clear from this that he has no problem with how the people are worshiping and praising him. In fact, he counters by quoting Psalm 8-2 that God has praise prepared for himself from children. In the original text, this psalm is talking about the work of creation of the world and of humankind. And it is a bold quote for Jesus to throw back at them because he, in, he is essentially claiming to be God and that the children are praising him collect, correctly. Now, even though Jesus does not often openly declare his messiahship, his sonship, and his divine status, he never hid it either. You remember in Matthew chapter 9 about the healing of the paralytic? The, the Pharisees were offended at that because he said, your sins are forgiven you. And they knew, the Pharisees knew that only God alone can forgive sins. And Jesus knows their thoughts and says, to show you that his sins are forgiven, I will make this paralytic walk. And he does. So in light of the previous claims and the cl claim now that Jesus deserves the praise reserved for God, we know why they are so indignant and upset with Jesus. 
the religious leaders know that he is claiming to be both Messiah and God. If this claim is false, it would be utter blasphemy. But we can see from the text that they left the city before a response could be taken, but they were clearly dumbfounded and outraged. Of course, it is their spiritual blindness that they chose not to see Jesus as he is, the Messiah of God. Doing miracles like healing, raising the dead, preaching to the poor, fulfilling prophecy, preaching with authority. They should have taken time to investigate these things. However, they didn't want Jesus to be who he claimed because it didn't, he didn't come from within their ranks. And it would have upset the status quo and the relatively nice life. I mentioned earlier that these priests and elders have, they get respect from the people and a good living wage. So what can we take away from this today? I think we need to take away that Jesus is the Messiah and God. This seems simple, but this is what separates Christianity from Islam, from Judaism, from Hinduism, from cults like Jehovah's Witnesses. This is the linchpin difference. I've seen many people get confused about the faith when it comes especially down to this. I talked to uh, a woman years ago, and she was a uh, a Muslim. She grew up in the Catholic Church and converted to Islam. And she said, you don't really believe that Jesus is, the, is God, right? That seems crazy. And I said, I do believe that. That's what the Bible clearly says. And she was offended by that, and it was upsetting, but she asked me directly, and I answered directly. So we can see from this text, even from this text alone, that Jesus is claiming to be God, and dozens of other texts affirm this. So we need to confront people who say false things. Now, I'm not saying you need to be a street preacher and not be sensitive and not listen to the Holy Spirit about what God is saying to you. But when people say false things, like you've heard these all before, all religions lead to the same God. Jesus never claimed to be God or the Bible we have is corrupted. We need to stand up and say that's not true because this is exactly what Jesus is claiming. I, I had this happen to me once. You know, I gave a gave a Muslim friends. We've been hanging out for a long time and spending time together. And I gave her a Bible and she said, this is not the true Bible. I'm like. What, how could this not be the true Bible? Because we have thousands of Greek texts and Hebrew texts that all say the same thing. And I, and I confronted her on that. She didn't, as far as I know, she didn't choose to accept that, but I planted that seed. So I confronted her and we should be confronting people if they're saying things that are false about who Jesus is, about who God is. My third point is not only does he confront issues and people, but he also confronts brokenness. In the next passage, we see that Jesus confronts the brokenness of nature. After Jesus leaves the stunned religious leaders, he stays the night in Bethany, which is likely because Jerusalem was overcrowded during Passover and he's wanting to be out of the city. They were heading back in the morning and Jesus wanted something to eat and he sees a fig tree. However, after looking for some breakfast on the tree, it only had leaves. He then curses the tree, declaring that no fruit would ever grow on it again. And miraculously, the tree immediately 
withers. The disciples marveled at this miracle. Perhaps the disciples got pretty used to seeing Jesus's healing ministry, or perhaps they were continually amazed. Either way, Jesus's control and power over nature, at least in the minds of the disciples, is certainly another level of, uh, of, of the miraculous, of what Jesus is capable of. If you remember earlier in Matthew, Jesus calms a storm and the disciples were amazed and they asked themselves, what kind of man is this that even the winds obey him? When Jesus walks on the water and got back in the boat, they worshiped him, it says, saying that he is the son of God. So the cursing in the minds of the disciples, the cursing of the fig tree is on the same level as these other miracles. And they are in awe, again, of Jesus. So Jesus sees the brokenness of this world and shows that he does not approve. The, this is reminds me of the curse from Genesis. And it says that God would curse the ground because of Adam's sin in the garden. And that it would bring forth thorns and thistles. Prior to the fall, fruits and vegetables would have grown without issue, with ease, all the time. So Jesus echoes God's curse to the ground by cursing this individual tree. It is not producing fruit the way God intended. Jesus also uses this tree as a lesson about faith. They were so stunned that they asked, how did this happen? How did it wither? Jesus uses this fig tree to instruct them about faith. He says, likely standing on the Mount of Olives, which is where they were returning back to Jerusalem from, that with faith, the disciples can hurl these mountains into oceans, which is pretty incredible, this, this idea, if we have faith. He goes on to say even more amazingly that whatever they ask in prayer, they will receive if they have faith. Jesus discusses the power of faith and what it can do for the kingdom. Jesus curses the fig tree as a demonstration of the brokenness of this world. If you remember in Romans 8, Paul says that the creation groans with longing for the revealing of the sons of God, and the creation was subjected to futility, and this is part of that, this tree, and Jesus points that out. His lesson about the power of faith also shows that he doesn't want us to curse what is already broken, but rather to bring healing and wholeness to the church, to the land, and to the world. And this directly applies to us today. When talking about faith, there is both the subject and the object of faith. Have you ever played the trust game? Anybody played that game? You stand up and there's somebody behind you, usually a spouse or a good friend, and you're supposed to close your eyes and lean back and fall. And if you trust your that person, they will catch you. It's kind of a scary game. Um, but you have to trust that person that they are first able to catch you. And B, they will catch you. And just like the trust game, the most important thing is the object of our faith. We can have faith in the universe or luck or karma or our good deeds, but all that is false. That's a false object. It produced nothing. If I trust my five-year-old son that he will catch me, I may believe it. I may have faith for it, but he is not going to be strong enough to catch me if I fall. I will hit the ground and I'll probably end up hurting him. 
So the, the object of the faith in Jesus is what the most important thing is. Faith in Christ, in what he did for us. Then there is the subject of faith. We may have the right object, but if we don't believe in him, then it also holds no value. I know many people who are intellectually aware that Jesus is the son of God, that the scriptures may be true, but it takes faith. It takes belief. It takes commitment for one to be saved. You must fully believe in Jesus and his power for you to get to do, for you to be able to do great acts of faith. And of course, to, to clarify, this is also not a blank check aspect of faith that Jesus is talking about, asking whatever you like in my name. This is not asking God for a Ferrari or a jet airplane or having more things for ourselves. And the prosperity gospel is a movement where people take sections like this and twist it to make it mean that faith is for personal gain and materialism. But that's not what Jesus is saying. If you remember earlier in Matthew, the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus taught them to pray what? That God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth. This is the framework within true faith in God will produce miracles and great acts of faith for God and his kingdom to come. At the same time, I don't want to explain this verse away. Jesus says here and elsewhere that disciples will, his disciples will do greater things that Jesus even did. And God does work today. I've known people who have been healed or have seen supernatural healing. I've seen prophecy where it's been like reading someone's person, personal mail. God is working. And, you know, perhaps he's not working as much in the West because maybe we have put so much faith in modern medicine and materialism. But many places where uh, in the East, where people are in abject poverty and trust the Lord, God is working miracles and healing people. That is happening. So God can work through us powerfully. Maybe you need a breakthrough in your life that there's a pattern of sin or weakness that you are unable to shake. Continue to pray in faith. And if it's in accordance with God's will and you have faith for it, then he will do it. And if there are people that are around you that are broken and sick, the Bible actually commands us to pray for them to be healed, for healing. And if we have faith and it's the Lord's will, they will be healed. And there also may be people, their friends or family members who continue to not believe in Jesus. However, I think that if you continue to pray in faith and it's the Lord's will, God will turn, turn them. They will repent. They will believe. God is working in, in this world. He is alive and well. Jesus is encouraging the disciples that their faith has great power while it's working. And I want you to remind you that this is true for us, that he is bringing his kingdom here to earth. And he wants to confront wants us to confront the brokenness of this world by faith and prayer in his power alone. In conclusion, we see that Jesus confronted the problems, the opponents, and a fragmented and shattered world that he saw and observed. Jesus is bringing a kingdom to earth, and he wants his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Therefore, he wants us to be like him in this respect. There are problems and topics that need to be addressed in our spheres of influence, 
whether that's work or school or home. We also will have those who will oppose the gospel and they'll oppose God in our lives. And there will be times when we need to confront them with the truth of what we believe. This is a, this I'm preaching to myself on this one because I definitely desire to go with the flow. I don't want to upset people, but Jesus is confronting people here. And we should be willing to do that at times if we, if it's the right time to do that. Finally, we live in a world that's full of brokenness. And through faith and prayer in Jesus' name, we can be part of God's healing and restoration where we are. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word that as we preach through the book of Matthew, we get so many aspects of your character. And this is a a powerful passage where Jesus, you are humble and meek and mild and you do not break a bruised reed. But there are also times where you are confronting people. You are confronting issues. You are turning over tables. You are cursing fig trees, cursing brokenness. God, we know that you are our example and you had a reason for those things that you did. We want to be like you. We want to know when to be humble, to be meek, to hold our peace and to know when to confront the issues. God, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us wisdom, give us discernment in our minds and our hearts as we as we engage in this world that we live in, as we talk to our friends, talk to our family, talk to our coworkers, spend time with people, listen, help us to listen to you and tell us when to confront, when to bring healing, when to confront the issues of our day, God. We need you, Jesus, to do this. We cannot do this on our own. On my own, I am a coward. But give us the boldness when it's the right time to proclaim who you are, that you are the true God. We love you, Jesus. We ask that you'd help us in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.